Good morning. Today's scripture comes from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went across the sea, that is, Tiberias Sea. A large crowd followed him because they had seen the miraculous signs he had done among the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat there with his disciples. It was nearly time for Passover, the Jewish festival. Jesus looked up and saw the large crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, where will we buy food to feed these people? Jesus said this to test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, more than half a year's salary worth of food wouldn't be enough for each person to have even a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, A youth here has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that for a crowd like this? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass there. They sat down, about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the bread. When he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were sitting there. He did the same with the fish, each getting as much as they wanted. When they had plenty to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that had been left over by those who had eaten. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I want you to think about a meal that you will never forget. A meal that, you're, that you will never forget. I can think of a few in my life for different reasons. Uh, the first, I think about uh, the first date I had with Reagan and pulling up to dinner that night at the gas station. And before I get funny messages and stuff, I'm being serious. I grew up Tarrant County side of things. And over in Watauga, if you know Tarrant County and Watauga, there's this gas station that long before it was featured on Food Network, it housed a fine dining restaurant in half of it called Chef Point Cafe. Now, it was featured on Guy Fieri's show and on several other shows since then, so now it looks more like a restaurant, but back when we went there, it looked like a Conoco gas station, and Reagan was shooting me some looks like, what are we doing here? And we sat down and had one of the best meals of my life, this blackened chicken stuffed Asiago cheese with this cream sauce on pasta. It was like 8,000 calories and worth every bite. I remember that meal because it was so delicious, but also because of who it was with. I mean, Reagan and I, we were so nervous going into that first date, both of us trying to play it really cool because we were really into each other. And by the end of dinner, we had begun discussing how many kids we hoped to have one day. So, you know, we kept it really chill, right? I'll never forget that meal. I'll also always remember a chili cheese dog po' boy in New Orleans. This wasn't my meal. This was my little brother Jake's meal. He's nine years younger than me. I was a teenager at the time, and we were about to get on a plane and go back home to Dallas when we stopped for a po' boy for lunch in New Orleans, and he got the chili cheese dog po' boy, and it looked about like how it imagines, except I don't remember the meal going in. I remember it coming out 
on the plane a few hours later as I was flying alone with my little brother. So I was the responsible party. That was a fun story to tell my mom as she saw us walking down the hallway in the airport, me wearing my undershirt, but not the other shirt I had been wearing, Jake wearing that shirt, and also a Southwest Airlines blanket as a toga. I will never forget that meal. I'll also never forget the barbecue that my family loves to eat in Kansas City when we get to travel there. Uh, Reagan's family is, is in Kansas City now. She grew up in Kansas and Salina and her parents and brother and his family live in Kansas City now. So we're rooting for the Chiefs tonight like I assume every other God-fearing Christian is because if you root for Tom Brady, then I think you made a deal with the devil. That's neither here nor there. But when we go to Kansas City, I love to eat their barbecue. And, and hear me out, as a Texan, I will admit, they should take brisket off the menu. It's absolute trash. But their ribs, their pork ribs are so good. The first time I went there for an entire week, I ate nothing but barbecue for every meal, I'm pretty sure. And I'm also pretty sure I didn't go number two for a month. But it was so good. I still get the meat sweats just thinking about those ribs. Not just the ribs, but the family that we get to share that meal around a table with. The family we haven't gotten to be in the same room with for over a year now, like many of you. These are meals that I won't forget for very many different reasons. There's an unforgettable meal in the Gospels as well. In fact, it's so unforgettable that out of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than Jesus' last week of life, what we call the passion narrative, when he shows up to Jerusalem until he's crucified that final week, outside of that week, there is only one story, one, story that is featured in every single gospel. And it's a meal, an unforgettable meal, a meal for 5,000 people, give or take. A meal that left such an impact that every gospel writer had to include it in their story. It was so central to understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do that it made its way into every story, and no other story can hold that acclaim. What does that tell us? First, it tells us that it's a story worth paying attention to, that made that kind of an impact. We ought to draw in close and look deeply at what's happening here. And secondly, it's interesting because every gospel author has a different take. Just like when your friends each tell their version of a story that happened that they all experienced, everyone's got their own little twist, and John is no different. He's got his own take that we're going to look at today as we continue in this series called A Generous Life. Today is our last week in this sermon series where we've been looking at our call to greater generosity both as individuals and as a collective community. And Today we're going to look at John's telling of this memorable meal and the things that are revealed to him and to us through this story, three things that I think are revealed through the story that are helpful for us this week as we continue on this path of discipleship towards greater generosity. The first thing the story reveals to us is this. It reveals who we are and who Jesus is not. Sometimes it's helpful to know who Jesus is not before we can know who Jesus is. It reveals who we are and who Jesus is not, and primarily through the eyes and actions of everyone around Jesus in this story, the disciples and the crowd. Let me say more. So the disciples that are there, I love the disciples. In all the Gospels, the disciples never get it, right? They're always cast as these uh, sort of schmucks that, that are always like halfway onto who Jesus is. And, and keep in mind, He has just performed these healing miracles, so they ought to be onto Him by now. But alas, they're not. And I can really identify with Philip. Did you hear what he said when Jesus said, hey, we got to feed these people? You know, because Jesus knows 
something about church work, and that is when you're going to gather this many people together in a space, you'd better have a plan to feed them, right? And so he says, let's feed these people. Let's feed this crowd gathered here. And Philip's reaction is honestly my reaction. Who are the realists in the room? You can type, that's me, or point to your friend that's watching with you this morning. Philip says, Jesus, more than half a year's salary more than half a year's salary. Look what I got. He says, I got this. How are we going to pay for this food? Half a year's salary wouldn't pay for a bite for every single person. How is this going to be possible? And then Andrew, I love Andrew. He tries to be a bit of an optimist, but he doesn't commit to it, right? He sees this boy that's brought up five loaves and two fishes, and he says, here's this kid that has five barley loaves and two fish, but yeah, you know, what good is that to a crowd like this, right? Like, like he's like, well, I did my job, but I don't know if that's going to do any good, right? So thanks, Andrew, for that. You know, it, it impresses upon me how so often we can see the meal that Jesus has set before us, and we see it as so meager. How many times in my life do I, do I see what's before me as so much smaller than Jesus wants me to see it as? And, and even more than that, so often I can be like Philip and Andrew where I see problems as looming so much larger than possibilities in my life. I fixate on what's not possible, on what can't be done, rather than considering what could be possible if, my, if I open up my perception. The crowd is the other sort of character in this story. And we didn't hear it in the Scripture reading a moment ago, but the end of the story goes like this. When the people saw that Jesus had done this miraculous sign, they said, this is truly the prophet who is coming into the world. And Jesus understood what they were about, and that they were about to come and force him to be their king. So he took refuge again, alone on the mountain. What does this mean? So to understand what, what's happening here, we have to understand the context of the story. It, it's taking place during Passover. Remember, it mentions that it's happening during Passover. And in fact, Jesus is, is sort of characterized as the host of a Passover meal in John's gospel. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the crowd it comes from a Jewish tradition, right? And if you're someone from a Jewish tradition, Passover is a very meaningful moment. It's connected to that original Passover from the story of Moses, that book of Exodus, when it's this sort of climactic ending as Moses is leading the people. It's what's going to create that moment for Moses to lead the people out of oppression and into liberation from under Egypt's thumb. And so if, if you're in a, a Jewish tradition person sitting in the crowd in Jesus' day, and it's Passover, and here's this miracle worker, and he's performing miracles at Passover, and you're living as an oppressed people in an oppressive land with a regime to be overthrown, what are you thinking? Here we go. It's time for Exodus part two. Here's our king. He's going to lead us to liberation. He's going to lead us to military conquest and victory. We're going to be our own people again, out from underneath Rome's empire. But Jesus knows that he is more than their king, both those words. He's more than theirs, and he's more than simply an earthly king. You know, maybe some of the people in the crowd interpreted king a little differently. Maybe they just thought, hey, here's a guy who's going to keep us well-fed. Like a king keeps his subjects well-fed. Here, here's a guy that's going to take care of our every desire and every need. And while it might sound nice to have a one-way street relationship with God, where God just gives us all that we want all of the time, John is not preaching the prosperity gospel. Because that doesn't create the kind of renewal that Jesus is after. Jesus wants more than an earthly king relationship with us. He wants to be more than just ours, some of ours. He wants to be all of ours. 
So the first thing the story reveals, it reveals who we are and who Jesus is not. We tend to see meals as meager, Jesus as merely a means to power, and problems looming larger than possibility. We tend to see meals as meager. What, what God has before us is so big and we can see it as so small. We see Jesus as merely a means to power. How can Jesus improve my life and make my status better? How is he a means to my ends? We see problems looming larger than possibility. Jesus, I see a crowd out before us and I can't imagine how we're going to feed them. Yeah, 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 I know you just healed a bunch of people, but I don't know how this is possible. The second thing this story reveals to us is it reveals who Jesus is. It reveals who Jesus is in a profound way. You know, Jesus knows what he's here to do. It mentions that he tests the disciples. He's testing them. Now, I don't think that God tests us in like a malicious way. I think this is more of a way of, of sharing that Jesus knows exactly what he's about and what he's there to accomplish. And I love this, this little image, this scene where, where it says this in the text. It says that Jesus distributed the food to those who were sitting there. Now, now maybe I'm reading a little too much into it for a moment, but um, it mentions later that he sends the disciples out to gather up the scraps, right? But it doesn't mention that he sends them out to serve. It says that he goes and distributes the food. I'm imagining Jesus going up to each of the 5,000 households gathered there and serving every one of them. How much bread do you need? Take some more. Do you want some more fish? Make sure you're full. That this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus that, that is being pictured here by John. You know, this, this, this story for John opens up a larger chapter where Jesus will, will tell the crowd that he is the bread of life. He's going to connect this personal connection moment to the theology of who he is saying, I am this bread of life. I am this nourishment that you just received. That, that personal work, it's about more than just your bellies. It's happening deep within your souls. You know, John's gospel, his version of the story is so uniquely Christological, which basically means it reveals the true nature of, Je of Jesus' nature. It reveals something core about who Jesus is. And who Jesus is, according to John, is someone that nourishes us in a way that nothing and no one else can. And Jesus is also someone that produces abundance from sacrifice. These five loaves and two fishes that, that Andrew and Philip couldn't possibly imagine feeding a crowd, suddenly they're carrying baskets to take in the extra. I want to say a word about that for a moment. On the subject of generosity, you know, there have been times in my life where I was not able to give as much as I wished I could. And maybe there were times in my life that I wasn't able to give anything at all. I think about like fresh out of college and riddled with debt. I, th I think about uh, going to grad school or, or maybe after uh, Andy was born and paying off hospital bills. You know, there, there are times when you wish you could put more zeros down, right? Or you feel like, God, I, I'm not giving enough. And that shame and that guilt can begin to take over. And yet, I know that that shame and that guilt is not born of the gospel, and it's not born of Jesus, because um, even the smallest sacrifice, if it's made meaningfully, um, Jesus can do something incredible with that. It impresses upon me that it's not about the amount that we give, not about the amount that we offer up. It's about how meaningful that sac sacrifice is to us. That's why in this Generous Life series, we've talked about praying the prayer, God, where do you want me to be in my giving? Because once that answer is found, once that peace is found, we can trust, even if what we feel like we're offering is five loaves and a couple of fish, 
What can Jesus do with that in His hands? What, what can Jesus do with our gifts here at Arapaho and in our larger community? We may see something small, but Jesus says, if it's meaningful, I'm going to turn this into abundance. Not for us personally, but for our larger world. I need to hear that truth this Sunday. Do you? So the second thing this story does is it reveals who Jesus is. Jesus turns meaningful sacrifice, no matter how small, into abundance. Meaningful sacrifice into abundance. But John's not just talking about who Jesus is. The last thing this story reveals is who we can be. Because it's not enough for us to simply see Jesus and go, wow, he's incredible. I wish I could be like that. Jesus says, no, we get to be like that. We're invited into this Jesus life. Notice the end. I love the end of this story. When Jesus sends the disciples out, the same ones who said, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to pull this off? All we've got is five loaves and two fish. He sends them out with baskets to go and collect all the scraps. Now, there's 12 baskets, and I'm going to let the Bible scholars debate and argue over the symbology of 12. But here's an idea. Maybe it's because there's 12 disciples, right? And every one of the disciples had to go out holding a basket. These same disciples that mumbled and grumbled about how this isn't going to work. And they had to go to each of these families, each of these people, and collect all the abundant scraps of bread. Notice they're not collecting scraps of fish because that's gross and doesn't keep well on the road. But they're going to collect all these scraps of bread. And they're going to see the impact of this meal in the faces of those gathered there. They're going to see the joy that comes with a full belly and, and, and full conversation amongst family and friends. They're going to feel the way of the abundance in their hands and bring it back to Christ, as though Christ is saying, you get to be a part of this abundant life as well. You get to take this basket out into the world. Imagine what this could become. Imagine what this could become in my spirit, in my grace. We are invited into that same kind of life. We are called in the same path as the disciples, in the same footsteps of Jesus, to carry our baskets, to hold our hands, ready to receive, and yet also ready to give. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the echoes of this story this morning. When we make Christ's hands our own, when we hold our hands in the form of a basket, ready to receive and ready to give, we get to witness with our own eyes and feel with our own hands how even the smallest, smallest scraps that we or our world may have to offer can become abundance and grace and mercy and love when our hands adopt the same shape as Christ's. So today I want to close reading a poem. I'm not a poet, but I like poetry. And I found a poem by a woman named Jan Richardson. She's a poet and author. And I also found out she is a United Methodist pastor, which is really cool. And she wrote this poem called Blessing the Fragments that I want to share with you now, and you'll see it on your screens. I invite you to hold your hands ready to receive and ready to give as you hear these words and maybe even read them along with me. Cup your hands together, she says. And you will see the shape this blessing wants to take. Basket, bowl, vessel. It cannot help but, open its, but hold itself open to welcome what comes. This blessing knows the secret of the fragments that find their way into its keeping. The wholeness that may hide in what has been left behind. The persistence of plenty where there seemed only lack. 
Look into the hollows of your hands and ask what wants to be gathered there. What abundance waits among the scraps that come to you? What feast will offer itself from the fragments that remain? And let God's people say, Amen.